Our call to worship this morning comes from the letter to the church at Colossae. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in the one body. And be thankful. Our prayer of approach this morning is taken from the book Gathering for Worship and it is a little bit longer than usual so if you feel a little bit restless that's okay. But let's just be still at least at the start as we talk to God. God, Father and Mother of us all, we pray for families in their joy where parents are loving and children lively where home is comfortable and jobs secure. We pray that our joy may be hallowed by thanksgiving and our happiness increased by sharing it. Amidst the blessings you send, keep us mindful of the one who sends them. Son of God, Saviour of all, joy and sword for Mary's heart, we pray for families in their sorrow where grief has come for a loved one, or where love is no more, where jobs or home are lost, or health has failed, where neighbours or relatives make trouble and children are wayward, where one or another is left coping with more than they bargained for, and nobody laughs or sings. Lord Jesus, in our desert and our Gethsemane, Give us your grace of strength and peace. We pray for families in their growing. Reconcile us with change in one another and in ourselves. Teach us that love need not be unaltering in order to be constant. Show us joy as a baby's trust becomes an adolescent's questioning. The beauty of strong hands grown waxen veined in age. Strengthen our relationships by contradiction and temper, as well as by acquiescence and peace. Creator Spirit, help us to grow towards mature humanity, measured, measured by nothing less than the full stature of Christ. Parent, Son and Holy Spirit, Providence, grace and love fit our families, whatever their shape, for the life of the heavenly household and for the service of humanity. O Lord our God, make your way in our hearts and be glorified in the manner of our life together. Amen. As he went on his way, Jesus saw a man blind from his birth. His disciples put the question, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, 
Why was he born blind? It is not that this man or his parents sinned, Jesus answered. He was born blind so that God's power might be displayed in curing him. While daylight lasts, we must carry on the work of him who sent me. Night comes when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. With these words, he spat on the ground and made a paste with the spittle. He spread it on the man's eyes and said to him, Go and wash in the pool of Siloam. The name means scent. The man went away and washed, and when he returned, he could see. His neighbors and those who were accustomed to see him begging said, Isn't this not the man who used to sit and beg? Others said, Yes, this is the man. Others again said, No, but it is someone like him. The man himself said, I am the man. They asked him, How were your eyes opened? He replied, The man called Jesus made a paste and smeared my eyes with it and told me to go to Siloam and wash. I went and washed and gained my sight. Where is he? they asked. He answered, I do not know. The man who had been blind was brought before the Pharisees. As it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the paste and opened his eyes, the Pharisees now asked him by what means he had gained his sight. And the man told them, he spread a paste on my eyes, then I washed and now I can see. Some of the Pharisees said, this fellow is no man of God, he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how could such signs come from a sinful man? So they took different sides. Then they continued to question him. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened? He answered, he is a prophet. The Jews would not believe that the man had been blind and had gained his sight until they had summoned his parents and questioned them. Is this man your son? Do you say that he was born blind? How is it that he can see now? The parents replied, We know that he is our son and that he was born blind. But how it is that he can now see or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents gave this answer because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jewish authorities had already agreed agreed that anyone who acknowledged Jesus as Messiah should be banned from the synagogue. That is why the parents said, He is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they summoned the man who had been blind and said, Speak the truth before God. We know that this fellow is a sinner. Whether or not he is a sinner, I do not know, the man replied. All I know is this. Once I was blind. Now I can see. What did he do to you, they asked. How did he open your eyes? I've told you already, he retorted, but you took no notice. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they became abusive. You are that man's disciple, they said, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we do not know where he comes from. The man replied, What an extraordinary thing. 
Here is a man who has opened my eyes, yet you do not know where he comes from. It is common knowledge that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to anyone who is devout and obeys his will. To open the eyes of a man born blind, it is unheard of since time began. If that man had not come from God, he could have done nothing. Who are you to give us lessons, they retorted, born and bred in sin as you are. Then they expelled him from the synagogue. Jesus heard that they had expelled him. When he found him, he asked, Have you faith in the Son of Man? The man answered, Tell me who he is, sir, that I should put my faith in him. You have seen him, said Jesus. Indeed, it is he who is speaking to you. Lord, I believe, he said, and bowed before him. Jesus said, It is for judgment that I have come into this world, to give sight to the sightless and to make blind those who see. Some Pharisees in his company asked, Do you mean that we are blind? If you were blind, said Jesus, you would not be guilty. But because you say, we see, your guilt remains. We are continuing our journey through Lent with another story about an encounter with Jesus. And I think this is probably the richest and the most complex story yet and suggests probably a direction of travel in the gospel writer's intentions as we draw nearer and nearer to the events of Holy Week. First of all, we met Nicodemus, a well-educated, earnest and orthodox Pharisee who sought Jesus out by night, presumably trying to avoid being seen by his peers. And he was left left bewildered by Jesus' enigmatic teaching. Though, as we reminded ourselves, he pops up twice again in the Gospel, suggesting as an absolute minimum that he stayed interested in Jesus, and quite possibly that he began to be a disciple. And then there was a serendipitous encounter in broad daylight that saw Jesus enter into a complex conversation with a nameless Samaritan woman, culminating in his self-revelation as Messiah and her voluntary undertaken mission to her neighbours. And so today... Oops, I've messed it up again, haven't I? I think I'm in the wrong place again, sorry. I've lost my picture. Forget it. Today... Oh, I've completely fouled up. I apologise. I'm not doing well with PowerPoint at the moment, am I? Today, we are in or near Jerusalem, the heart of Jewish culture, and Jesus is walking along, minding his own business. When prompted by them noticing a blind man begging at the side of the road, his disciples ask a question about the relationship between sin and sickness, a connection that Jesus roundly refutes. What follows is actually a series of encounters between the nameless blind man and the various groups, and a process of revelation quite similar to what we saw with the Samaritan woman. 
Whilst it is possible that the events described could have all taken place on one day, it seems plausible and, to be honest, more likely that they occurred over an extended period of time. And perhaps surprisingly, it's the nameless blind beggar who is the main character in this story, even though the catalyst or prime mover is Jesus. The man sitting at the roadside in his usual begging spot must have been aware that he was being spoken about and heard the approach of Jesus and the disciples who stopped right beside him. And instead of dropping a few coins in the man's begging bowl, Jesus knelt down, most probably, I don't know, but most probably, spat on the ground, mixed up some mud, spread it on his eyes, and dispatched him to Siloam, the pool called Sent. And Jesus then disappears for quite a long time. The story carries on with no physical presence of Jesus. So the man, having abandoned his begging pitch, somehow or other found his way to Siloam, washed his face, discovered he could now see, and went back home. And when he got there, all his neighbours, the people who had known him all his life, were clearly confused. Was it him, or wasn't it? And his protestations that, yes, of course, it's me, raise another question. Well, if it is you, how come you can see? Blind people don't suddenly get their vision. Everybody knows that. So what's happened? And when he replies, saying, Jesus did this, a man called Jesus did this, they become quite hostile in their interrogation. Well, where is he then? Where's this Jesus who enabled you to see? He doesn't know. Jesus went one way, he went the other. He's never seen Jesus' face. In fact, he's never seen anybody's face. He heard Jesus' voice. He did as he was commanded and went off to Siloam. But where Jesus might be, well, who knows? He certainly doesn't. And he must still be coming to terms with seeing. His senses bombarded by light and colour and shape. And he's still trying to make sense of all of this. And he finds that rather than being pleased for him, rather than saying how wonderful his neighbours, bombard him with questions and drag him off to see the Pharisees. The author now reveals another little detail in the story. Seemingly, these events took place on a Sabbath. And in making the mud, Jesus would have been judged to work. And it's entirely feasible that the man himself may have walked further than was permitted on a Sabbath. And so a whole new can of worms is opened up. We've moved into the realms of what is acceptable behaviour for religiously orthodox people. And the Pharisees are clearly conflicted. They can't agree on this. If Jesus doesn't keep the Sabbath, then he must be a sinner. But if he's a sinner, how can he give sight to a blind man? 
doesn't add up. And I think what happens next is really surprising. They, said to the, they say to the man, well, well, what do you think? And I find this quite interesting because his opinion of Jesus has already begun to change. Having said to his neighbours, a man called Jesus told me to do this, he now says, well, he's a prophet. Those who were here last week and had the chance to explore the Samaritan woman's story will see a similarity in the pattern that's going here. The authorities, though, decide the man must be lying. So they send for his parents and they say, they ask them questions about his identity. Is this your son? And how come he can now see? The poor parents are very fearful. They're ordinary, decent people who've brought up a blind child in a society where sidelong glances and snide comments about sin and its consequences may have been regular events. Quite possibly marginalised within their own village, they now find themselves the centre of attention. Every eye is fixed upon them as they try to shift the attention away from themselves. Why were the parents so frightened? Well, the author again drops in a new piece of information. Although the fact that it uses the word Christ or Messiah suggests it could have been added or altered years later. But semantics and redaction aside, we're giving an insight into the growing tension that surrounds the ministry of Jesus and the very real threat by the authorities that they were going to expel from the synagogue anyone who might suggest he was the Messiah. I suspect these parents, not unreasonably, don't want to lose their tentative grip on respectability or their place in the community. So they don't play. They just say, we're not going to answer. He's grown up. Ask him. Maybe a little bit of um, passing it sideways, but, but understandable. What follows next is a truly remarkable dialogue between the man, still growing accustomed to seeing, and the hostile, aggressive authorities who spout venom. They insult the man and they make ludicrous comments about Jesus. With newfound boldness and not a little sarcasm, it has to be said, the man stands up to them. Now, that's remarkable, isn't it? You're the orthodox religious elite. You're the educated ones. You've had all the opportunities and you don't know where Jesus came from. And he made me see. Everybody knows that Jesus doesn't listen to sinners, but only to godly people. Even peasant villagers, even children, even blind beggars, everybody knows that. Who ever, ever heard of a blind person? Born, sorry, a person born blind being able to see. If Jesus was a sinner, if he wasn't from God, he couldn't have done this. You really don't need to be a Pharisee to know that. Okay, I'm elaborating a bit, but that's the kind of tone of what he's saying. And this, for them, is the last straw. The nice, orthodox people who know their scriptures, who obey all the rules, tell the formerly blind man that he was steeped in sin at birth, and they throw him out. 
quite probably leaving him ostracized by his community and possibly even straining relationships with his folk at home. How must he have felt? He'd just been sitting by the road, minding his own business. He'd overheard Jesus saying that this blindness had nothing to do with sin, and then a whole chain of events had been set in motion that culminated in this moment. Despondently, perhaps he looked around him, the vibrant colours fading, the newly interesting shapes of trees and houses shifted out of focus as tears filled his eyes. He faces a bleak, lonely, empty future. Somehow, Jesus hears about this and he sets out to find the man. I like to think of Jesus when he finds him looking him in the eye and looking at him with an air of compassion as he asks him this really curious question that seems to have nothing to do with the man's immediate predicament. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Which is code language for, do you believe in the Messiah? And the man replies, basically, yes, I I, I want to believe in this promised one, but, but who is he? And in a second incident in John's Gospel of Jesus revealing his identity, as he did to the woman at Sukkah, so the man recognizes him and believes and says, yes, you are my Lord. This is a story with many different ideas and operates at many levels. The idea of literal and spiritual blindness. Questions about the relationship between sin and sickness, which Jesus refutes there is one. The tension between orthodoxy and orthopraxy, and so on. It is even seen by some as a parabolic description of the growing rift that is emerging between orthodox Judaism and the emerging Jesus movement. And certainly it keeps scholars and theologians entertained for hours. But right at the heart of it is an all-too-human story of an encounter with Jesus that turns the world upside down for those involved. The man is given physical vision, but he loses his place in the community where he grew up. Earnest religious people are confused by conflicting ideas and they seem to be squabbling quite a bit. Parents are torn between supporting their beloved son and their fear of final rejection by their neighbours and expulsion from the synagogue. It's not an easy story and the end, which I'm not going to talk about, is particularly bewildering in its language. But I wonder where we locate ourselves in this story. With whom is it that we identify and why? What do we learn about Jesus, whose seemingly chance encounter triggered this whole chain of events? What difference has our encounter with Jesus made to us, to our families, our neighbours, 
or our church. We're going to follow the pattern of the last few weeks and remain seated as we sing. And after that, then we will go into our time of guided silent reflection. Without seeing you, we love you. we've done for the last couple of weeks I'm going to pass out some sheets which have a picture which you've got a glimpse of (laughs) and a poem and some questions if those are helpful for you in your reflection there is a space at the back a table with some paper and pens and pencils if you prefer to draw or scribble if you find it more helpful to move around to walk about or something please do uh, and do so quietly if you possibly can Um, people should be concentrating not wondering about who's walking about I know some people find it quite difficult to concentrate for 10 minutes, um, and a few people have mentioned that to me. That's okay. Um, We're not expecting perfection. We're just going to try and engage. So if you find your mind's wandering off to think about what you're having for dinner or think about what you're doing tomorrow, that's fine. Don't worry. Just note that. Stop. And then just try and pull yourself back and try again. I appreciate that silence isn't everybody's thing, um, but hopefully there are some people who are finding this is a useful way of, of reflecting over these weeks.
Let us pray. Dear Lord, we come to humbly lay before you our prayers for ourselves and others. We do so believing we are your people, chosen to be your own, chosen as people whom the world will see, reflecting your boundless, endless love. Our sad and broken world yearns to receive love and its bountiful fruits of universal justice, compassion and care. But even so, many find it difficult to give out love in turn without imposing qualifications. Look as we do. Think as we do. Speak as we do. Live as we do. Believe as we do. Lord, we pray that you will help such people to understand love is not about restrictions, but understanding and forgiveness. We are all made from the same cloth. It is woven in different weights, dyed in different colours, much of it frayed and stained and shabby. But ultimately, it is the same cloth. Let those who would limit love see they are also chosen by you and bound by your love to share it with others, no matter how hard that sometimes can be. There is only one cloth, one weaver. Many of us feel a kindred empathy for doubting Thomas, who said he could not believe unless he saw had physical proof. Perhaps there were others in the room that night who thought the same, but dared not say so. Yet down the centuries, Lord Jesus, people who were not privileged to see you walk amongst men, have believed without seeing you, and loved you, and dedicated their lives to your service. They were blessed to feel your loving spirit. We pray that we can acknowledge the doubts felt by that early disciple, yet be strengthened by the support of your Holy Spirit. We live in an age of doubt, an age when we create and celebrate ephemeral icons, then delight and smashing them to pieces. Love is declared extravagantly, but it is a shallow love because it seeks only self-gratification. Let us love wisely, Lord, we pray, guided by your blessed example. We pray for the lovelorn people of our world, for the hungry the homeless, the abused, the bereaved, the desperate, the sick, the downtrodden, the victims of war, and also the cruel people who inflict such hardships. 
all those who think themselves abandoned without someone to care, to heal, to feed, to wipe away their tears. Let them know, Lord, your all-encompassing love is there to care, heal, feed, and replace tears with smiles. All through those who have heard your message. Let us, all of us, in whatever way we can, be the instruments of your love, spreading amongst others that which we have received from you. Lord, we pray that you bless the loving mothers of this world and give them joy in their children, the same joy we hope you find in us. And finally, that you will give your own maternal love in guiding us, your children, in the life-changing decisions we have to make in the near future. Lord, it is true we have not seen you, but we feel your love. In your amazing grace, help us to pass that love on to others in need. This we humbly pray in the name of your beloved Son, who gave his love without restriction, our Lord Jesus Christ. Shalom. Amen. A prayer from St. Ambrose. And you, Jesus, sweet Lord, are you not also a mother? Truly you are a mother, the mother of all mothers, who tasted death in your desire to give life to your children. And so, bless us with renewed vision and confident hope as we face our own challenges this day and indeed every day.